This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. G'day listeners, Tim Bartomat here, cropping advisor with Local Land Services, and I'll be jumping in for Narrily on this podcast. Today we'll be hearing from Trent Fraser. Trent, alongside his family, runs an 880 hectare property called Warri, located southwest of Stewarttown, where they mainly focus on sheep and cattle, as well as a little cropping. In today's episode, we'll consider the benefit of local trials and how they provide producers with relevant information to help with decision making. Trent also explains his family's battle with St John's wort and his approach to controlling it on the property. And finally, Trent speaks on his passion for wool, explaining the challenges his family faces, as well as the rewards they find in being part of this staple industry. I sat down with Trent for this convo on the veranda in a couple of chairs overlooking the hills on Warri. Let's have a listen. Welcome back, listeners, to the podcast. I'm here with Trent Fraser from Warri. How are you going today, Trent? Good, thanks, Tim. Can you tell us a little bit about where we are? Our property is situated between Wellington and Orange, just off Burundong Way, and we've got about 880 hectares here of predominantly grazing country with a little bit of cropping thrown in and mainly sheep and cattle. What's the soil types around here typically? We've got a bit of a mixture here to the west. We've got some better sort of basalt country. And then further east here, we've got sort of a shale-based loamy type soil. They've each got their pros and cons, I suppose, but we're just pretty lucky we've got variability, I suppose. Yeah, a few different options for depending on the enterprise. Yeah, exactly. And I think they hold hold moisture differently and all that sort of thing. So it's just about managing that and deciding which, which crops go where or which pastures grow best where. And so we've mentioned before that it's a bit central where you are. So we've, what you say, we're about 45 minutes from Wellow. Yep, and then about 45 minutes to Orange. So, and then we're not far to Molong to the west of us or southwest. So, yeah, no, it's good. It's not too far away from everywhere, but far enough, I guess. <laughs> Just out of the road a little bit. And so, how long has your family been associated with this block? The Warri itself, I'm fourth generation. And then we've got adjoining property that's, we run it as this, as one block but it's it'll be sixth generation up there so yeah the family's been in the district for quite a while and so how long have you personally been back on the farm my wife and kids have we've moved back this year only the start of this year but i've been in partnership with my parents for best part of 10 years and previously we lived on another block and in town really so but we've made the move out there this year after a pretty successful succession well it's always a good thing to hear isn't it I wouldn't say it was challenging, but it's just something that had to happen and um, well, you're hoping that everyone comes out as happy as they can be. And so I know you had a bit of, um, you did some other jobs before this. I just remember, I think we had a conversation and you mentioned that you did a bit of trial agronomy. Yeah, I worked for a private research company out of Orange and we did a little efficacy trial sort of thing, like plot work with major chemical companies to get products registered. And I did a little bit of agronomy work, but then I probably just threw my interest and experience growing up on a livestock farm I went down the path of doing sort of animal health research 
or getting product registered that'll control lice and flies and things like that, sheep and cattle. What benefit have you found from that experience of doing plot trials and that sort of thing? At the time, it was really interesting to see what was working because you'd obviously have a lot of controls or comparing it to other products. So it was great to just see that. And then also gives you the experience and ability to do your own mock trials at home here. If something wasn't working quite like it should, we'd do a little trial, whether it be fertilizer trial or chemical trial. or So no, it was certainly pretty interesting work, really. So when you talk about your own trials, you're not talking about like accidental ones where you forget to turn something on or <laughs> something gets blocked. Or... But no, you just fiddle around with the rates a little bit or I wouldn't say they were. it was a perfectly randomised trial or anything, but you could just sort of compare the treatments, I guess. I guess as a producer now, do you kind of go to you know workshops and field days potentially and still get a fair bit of benefit from people who are doing that sort of work still? No, I think it's great. I think there should be more of it really like... I know you guys did that trial site there at Wellington on St John's Ward and I think it's terrific to see the different options that everyone's using. Like a lot of agronomists or or farmers might have their own brews but it's just nice to see them alongside each other I suppose. Yeah, it's kind of puts them on a level playing field perhaps and really highlights what's working, what's not potentially. And then even at local level like you can see the chemicals might be working differently say from here to if we're 100 k's away but if it's quite local those trial sites are local you can really get some benefit out of it i think do you keep much keep an eye on like the local national variety trials that are scattered around the place oh i used to a little bit but no not really anymore but we used to be involved in those too in my previous work and they're terrific really for croppers and if you're looking for a dual purpose type but yeah it's really good to compare that side by side i guess so talking about dual purpose cropping is that predominantly the kind of crops that you're implementing around here? Yeah, we don't put an awful lot in, but if we're tidying up a paddock to go into pasture, we will do two or three years of cropping and mainly fodder oats or barley or and then go to a brassica or something and then and then sow it down. Just gives us a few options, weed control-wise, and and then we'll, we'll plant it down to a, depending on where we're at or which sort of soil type we're looking, but mainly a Phalaris sort of clover base and then um, and then might probably loosen all clovers on the better paddocks. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, brassicas there because they've gained quite a lot of popularity in the last few years. What's your go-to? We've tried a few We've and I can see the dual-purpose canola working really well in, in some places but we're probably a bit small to worry about harvesting it so we, we generally stick to the hybrid brassicas and we just find the biomass we get there and the amount of grazings we can use is is terrific and then it kind of conditions your soil too going into a pasture I think with a big taproot and you can you do have a few chemical options so no they're they're working pretty well here. Yeah it's pretty amazing like a colleague of mine was doing a presentation on feed testing and and did one on one of those brassica grazing crops I think it was a grazing canola and it was phenomenal the amount of energy in, in protein that's wrapped up in those things it's like rocket fuel. I think it takes a little while for sheep to, particularly lambs, to get onto it. But if you introduce them pretty slowly and have some fibre in there for them in some hay or something like that, or, yeah, it's amazing how they can grow on it, I think. So what's your process there? We're probably lucky here that a lot of the paddocks aren't. We can't crop the whole lot, if you know what I mean. So we've probably got there's some – there might be a clump of trees or some rocks or something that you can't – obviously can't sow. So there's other – grasses and things 
that they can eat. But if we were, if it was pretty much a paddock just of straight brassica, we'd be you'd just be introducing them slowly, probably for only a few hours a day in the and in the afternoon. I think is better and yeah, just watching them because they can they can cause a bit of photosensitization and and other other problems. But if they grazed onto it slowly, I think they're they're fine. Once they get onto it, they're great. So Trent, how are your pastures tracking this season with a bit of a the hot spring that we had coming through? Are they surviving all right or surprisingly they're they're hanging on. I think Tim they've especially the perennials obviously, the phalaris and things. Like we didn't get much of clover anyway this winter or spring, but no, they're they're hanging on there. And I mean we've so there's a little bit of loosen over here that we're looking at. I didn't think it was gonna be any good at all, but it's sort of it's hanging in there. We've got another block up on some basalt type soil that is looking pretty handy and it was only sown this year in May so yeah no pretty happy really it's just about managing that rest period I think like anything even the native type countries hang on quite well if if it's spelled enough like yeah so we've just got a couple of mobs sort of in a semi-confined sort of feeding situation I suppose so and they're, they're going okay but it's just about spelling the rest of the paddocks, I think. And if we do get these storms over summer, I think they'll be okay. And then I'm also thinking, like, it's, it's only driving around yesterday that all going well, we do get a autumn next year. I think there's going to be quite a good base to start from as far as clover germination and, and your grasses because everything's sort of just sitting there waiting, I suppose. You know, it won't be a heap of ground cover, so the clover should get going. And but then that phalaris is quite amazing, I think. Or any any perennial, it'll it'll hang about until it's right to go. So, how important is clover in your pasture system? I'd say pretty important. Yeah, especially we sort of lamb lamb in spring, usually on better pastures, and the clover content certainly helps the lambs get going and keeps condition on the ewes and it drives obviously the grasses as well with the fixing of the nitrogen and, and things like that. But no, we we try to put a few different types of clover in when we do sow down a paddock. What species? A couple of types of subclovers and a bit of arrow leaf clover. And we might mix arrow leaf even with some bit of lucerne and stuff as well. So I find it's quite hardy really as far as the clover goes, yeah. Yeah, Trent, weeds, bane of everyone, every farmer's existence, but Around this area, St. John's Wort is kind of one of the kings of those weeds. It's always been a bit of a battle for everyone. How long has your family been dealing with St. John's Wort? Oh, I don't know. I think it's a long time and, and we still obviously haven't won the battle. But no, it is a concern. Like Everyone, I guess, tries to do their bit, but it's the expense and time to cover it can sometimes be a bit daunting. So if I'm a producer listening who's you know out on flat country west of here, can you kind of describe to them why St John's Wort is such an issue? What makes it so bad? Obviously competition for other species and things too, but it's poisonous to the sheep really, or all livestock, but sheep in particular. And younger sheep, they can hear yeah, photosensitisation and it can knock them about pretty quickly really In at certain times of years. They do, they do eat it. They'll probably prefer to eat it sometimes, I think, but over winter and autumn months they it doesn't hurt them as much, so we try and implement that into our strategy, I guess, to control it. But that takes a lot of mouths sometimes. Yeah, to really get on top of it. And it's not necessarily in your cropping country, obviously. It's more in your, your hilly country. Yeah, hilly country and trees and everywhere, really. It can grow anywhere. So, 
but certainly easier to keep out of a cropping paddock or a better pastured paddock. Try and get on top of it, I suppose. Yeah, because I guess that's probably something we need to remind the listeners. Like St John's Wort, the seed can last about 20 years or something, they reckon, and each plant can thousands and thousands of seeds. So it's not long before you get a fair amount of seeds in that seed bank, just waiting for a good season to go. Exactly, yeah. And it just responds, well, even the trial site, you guys are running, you could just see the after a couple of inches of rain at the right time, it can get going pretty quickly. Yeah, because that was probably one of our battles is because um, we did these demos across the region and I sprayed them with different treatments and things like that and found they knocked them on the head. But then in some sites where they got a heap of rain following that, they just, yeah, new seeds grew and some came back. So not fun to play with anyway. And grazing, like that's what I want to, other than the cost of chemicals, you just don't want to rely on it, I guess. Yeah, I'm trying to graze it a bit more strategically, but it's just one of those battles that we've just got to keep doing because you've got to graze it with the right sort of class of stock. If it's quite thick, you don't want to use young lambs or even it does worry the older sheep too, but if they've got a bit of a wool cover on them, they're generally pretty good. Yeah, lather them up, a bit of sunscreen, keep them out of trouble. Because that's probably something that we come across a little bit is that potential for grazing St John's Walk because from what I understand there's the high pyrosin levels which is the what's causing the issues I guess wanes and increases depending on the maturity of the plant. So in winter like you were saying there's potential for a bit more of a, a crack at it with stock and then obviously got to pull them off before they it starts getting to maturity and causing those issues. I think that's what you've got to keep an eye on but it does even – a little bit that has that might be growing this year it's been delayed i guess maturity has been delayed by grazing it so that i guess that's a good thing and it's quite short so i'm hoping that it's probably less toxic if you like or there's still going to be a certain amount in there but it's just because it's purely there's not as much bulk then it might not affect them as much and I, and that's been the case i think i haven't seen any real sign of animals with that's been affected this year it's a bit of a tricky one because there's actually some really good data that's rolling around. I think DPI's got some great fact sheets that they've done in the past and even done some testing on hyperacin levels over time, which have been, I found, really helpful. So if anyone wants to have a look at that, you can find it. But what's your plan going forward to tackling it? Is it kind of this toolbox approach combining a few different control methods? Yeah, I think so, Tim. It's going to just take time. We want to improve the pastures mainly, so we've a lot of the paddocks we're just going to concentrate on whether it, if we can sow down on other places we might just try and increase fertilizer use and just try and battle away that way and obviously strategically grazing whether it be with some with sheep or and cattle i guess what would be your words of advice to someone who's like ah oh, just just can't deal with this it's getting it's overwhelming how do they start you probably need to ask that to someone that's doing a better job controlling it than me but um but no i'd just keep chipping away i mean it's gonna you can't fix it in one season so i think you've just got to concentrate on probably keeping out of your better paddocks because it isn't carried by the wind or as much as people might think it's more has to be moved by livestock or wildlife so for it to spread so you know it doesn't generally spread too quickly but once it's there, it, it can get established pretty well. So, yeah, just keep trying to keep it out of your better paddocks and then just keep working away and try and, I don't know, confine it to the thicker spots but then just keep chipping away at it. Yeah, so consistency is the way to get on top of St John's Wort, you think? 
and stirring your neighbours up. <laughs> There's a joke that I don't know if you noticed. I like to tell when I do like anything on St John's Wort. I'm like, who here wants to control St John's Wort in their own place? Who here wants to control Wort on their neighbour's place? <laughs> and everyone's hand goes up. Well, that'd be they're probably talking about me in that case. I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, it's it's one of those things. It's here, so we've just got to deal with it in front of us and and do the best we can, I suppose, without throwing too much money at it, I guess, because like, you can, I think you can waste a lot. Yeah, it's a bit of a bottomless pit. So, got a fair bit of sheep, merinos. How long has your family been producing wool? The entire time they've been on this block? Pretty sure, Tim, yep. So they would have had certainly merinos anyway. The numbers might have varied, but yeah, mainly medium micron merinos. We source our, our rams from a stud over near Peak Hill, but our average micron's about 19 micron, I suppose. But now we've found that merinos suit this country and, I don't know, they've been a pretty good average enterprise for years, I think. Well, personally, if, we've, if we're going to chase the trends or perhaps change enterprises, we might not even be here, you know what I mean? So I think the sheep game for us has just been pretty steady enterprise for us, for our situation. Just, again, that consistent. Yeah, that's right. And wool's always, it might be amazing, but it's something... And I still see a future for, for wool and I think it's there's a lot going for it, I suppose, as a natural fibre and all the green, clean sort of movement. I think there's certainly a future for it. And then you've got a quite a framey animal to – we do put a dorset ram over some of our older sheep or culls and, and there's the fat lamb opportunity too, so they tick the boxes for us as far as consistency goes. So is that the main driver, you think? It's suitability or you just, just love wool? A bit of both, but really like – we can see the few paddocks here we're looking at. I'm not going to rip into them with an air seater or anything. So, yeah, there's always going to be a place for sheep here, I think, particularly merinos. They just suit our style. So what do you think the industry, the wool industry, needs to improve? Like is there opportunity going forward, do you think, that we're not capitalising on? Look, I think it's, we've just got to stick together, I guess. Like there, there seems to be some divide in the industry with types of sheep and things like that. But I think if we put all that behind us and move forward together as an industry, I think there's got to be some great opportunities moving forward. Because what do you think the you know person on the street, what do you think their attitude to wool is? It'd be vary, but I think the main thing would be education. They just probably don't know the process of it, like even from growing it to spinning it into a garment or a product. But the general public on the, down the street, yeah, it'd be just – relate to wool, you know, when they had to wear knitted jumpers back in the 80s or whatever and it itched your neck and arms and drove you crazy. But wool's gone so much further than that these days. Like there's a lot of um, next-to-skin products like, and a lot of active wear that has wool in it because of the breathing and capabilities of it and things like that. And it's slowly getting there. It's just a matter of promoting it and educating people. It's all well and good until you go to buy a suit and then you're like, ooh. Those wool suits go a long way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like it's here to stay anyway on Worry. Yeah. Oh, there's always room for improvement. So always looking to get better, our merinos. But I think there's certainly a good opportunity for that too, particularly with animal health, oh, so animal welfare issues that are only becoming, you know, more prevalent, like musing issues and things like that. So, you know, we're going to have to as an industry, breed sheep that are more easy care, I guess, and tick those boxes for animal welfare. 
because of that perception from outside? Probably, yeah. Like, again, they don't, because it's so, such a visual thing, millsing, it's easy to see how bad it looks, but it also does do a, has a place and has done in Australia for many years. But if the end consumer isn't wanting it, then it's um, something that as an industry we've probably got to, you know, and, and there is certainly a lot of breeders that are doing that and looking to the future where we, the animal welfare issues and I guess a social license, that's what I'm looking for, needs to, we need to tick those boxes. And I guess that's when you're supplying something, kind of the consumer, yeah, it's, it's a bit difficult when like, they're the ones getting the say, I guess, because they're the ones buying your product and if they don't want it, they won't buy it. Exactly. I guess that's some of the challenges in the wool industry, I guess, in a nutshell, is trying to work that out, get the information out there, like you were saying, but also understanding the changing demands of the consumers. It's probably agriculture across the board too, really, Tim. Like it's, yeah, wool and sheep are probably pretty good focus at the moment, but even but cattle and even cropping, they all have their issues, water use, all that sort of stuff. So, so as an ag industry, we've just got to be moving forward to be on the front foot for those sort of challenges, I guess. Yeah, because you trade cattle, don't you? We haven't done a lot of it in the past, but back home I just want to try and turn over a few more cattle and hopefully they can do a job on some ranker pastures or weeds. So they're just another tool, I, I think, to battle that sort of stuff. Like I said, I think I might have told you before, that won't be the only reason. Like we still want to make a turn a profit with them, but, but yeah, I just think there's a place for that here, especially in parasite control and, or management too with sheep and cattle where you can graze at certain times and complement each other pretty well. Well, thanks, Trent. It's been great to come out here and, and see all the hills I'm not so used to. You too, Tim. Thanks for coming and welcome anytime. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.